great. You've been loading up on things from Walmart? Yeah, I used my new Capital One Walmart Rewards card. It earns unlimited 5% back on everything I buy from Walmart online. Say what? 5% back. Say what? 5% back. Say what now? 5% back. With what? The Capital One Walmart Rewards card. Earn unlimited rewards, including 5% back at Walmart online on top of Walmart's everyday low prices. What's in your wallet? Terms and exclusions apply. Capital One N.A. You are listening to the Already Gone podcast, sharing stories of the missing, the lost, the mysterious, and the murdered. This week, I had the opportunity to sit down with Frank Demers, the Director of Public Safety in the city of Farmington, Michigan. We discussed the case of 18-year-old Deborah Rentschler, whose murder in 1980 remains unsolved. If you have information about the death of Deborah Rentschler, please contact Farmington Public Safety at 248 474 47 Zero was a um, 18-year-old heroin addict prostitute who worked in the Woodward and uh, Seven Mile Seaward area. Uh, kicked out of her home at an early age. Um, juvenile uh, troubles all growing up. Uh, broken home, abusive father, mother passed away. So she, life was stacked against her at a very early age. We know that she was last seen on um, the early morning hours of Christmas Eve 1980. Uh, with her boyfriend slash pimp. He actually called her in and missing and ultimately um, was able to provide information that identified her, identified her, which we didn't know for the first several hours into the investigation. So, you know, it doesn't get the attraction that, you know, a more businessman who suddenly goes missing or the, the prominent, um, you know, public figure who suddenly winds up dead. You know, this is just a girl who... Um, you know, got in the system early and turned to prostitution and drugs and it appears died a, a terrible death. Our job is to never let that go to bed. You know, we have to keep pushing on and, and pursuing new leads. So that's kind of where we're at now. When she was found, was any of her stuff with her? I, I understand that she was found nude in a, basically in a snowbank. Right. No, she had no, uh, no personal belongings with her. So. And none were discovered later. None discovered. Is there anything that may have been with her at that time, the jewelry that someone could have kept? We've always heard the, the theory that the, the rapist or the, the killer wants to keep some type of memento from mm -hmm. the victim, typically a serial-style uh, right. killer. Um, nothing of significance that we're aware of to this date based on the people that we've interviewed. Okay. Um, we know that you know she had very uh, limited clothing, uh, certainly nothing of uh, anything of unique in nature, okay. um, so we really can't... We really can't identify anything, any like anomaly, uh, you know, a, a right. necklace, bracelet, earrings, anything like that. But she we really didn't have anything like that. Didn't have anything like that no. okay. And what about can what can you tell my listeners about where she was found? Sure, she was found in a uh, in a parking lot in a um, in, that was in an area of uh, Grand River and Drake, south of Grand River Avenue, and west of Drake Road. At the time, there were two buildings there. One was Tektronics, which was sort of a uh, uh, electronics provider for the, um, the car industry, I believe. And the other one was a uh, UNRA building. Um, it was a credit union. 
and I believe there was a masonry union hall um, released out of that office as well. Uh, so it was uh, mainly Monday through Friday, 8.30 to 5.30, uh, traffic coming and going from there. Very desolate area, uh, surrounded by a lot of trees, separating it from the surrounding neighborhoods. So early ports of the investigation, I always said it, it, that this is the premier location to uh, commit a crime, dump a body, because it's so desolate. And it was even more desolate back then in 1980. Okay. Was the Comerica Bank there at the time, or was that where the credit union was? I believe that's where the credit union was. Okay. Yeah. Because if you're up there, I've driven up there, and if you're up there, you have this nice sort of panoramic view yes. of the intersection. Right. If you're in the intersection, you can't see You can't see, see right anything. There. It is completely closed off to the main roadways. Yeah. And it's not some... If you didn't know that that space was there you wouldn't know that it was there. Correct. So can we be safe assuming that whoever took her there probably knew the location prior? I have always thought that that to be the case. I'm more inclined to believe that the person who placed her there, dumped her there, knew the area, was familiar with it, and had probably either done business there in some way, shape, or form in the past, or just had knowledge of its location. She was found like at 8.30 in the morning. Was it on Christmas Eve or Christmas Eve Eve? It, it was on uh, Christmas Eve. It was uh, December 24th okay. um, of 1980. It was about 8 in the morning when we got the, when we got the call from okay. uh, employees who were arriving at the Tektronix building that day. And they initially reported, the witness himself, the initial witness said, I thought somebody was just playing a joke. I thought it was a mannequin in the lot. So as he walked closer to it, realized it was actually the body of a nude woman, he facilitated a phone call to us immediately, at which time uh, we arrived and uh, enlisted the help of the Michigan State Police Crime Lab, which was still in Northville at the time. Okay. And then she was transported to the ME's office at some point. Just to back up a little bit, um, it had snowed, according to the weather reports we have, sometime after uh, 2.30 in the morning on, on uh, Christmas Eve um, right. of 1980. So it's safe to assume that she was dumped uh, for that point. Her body was snow-covered. Okay. When our officers began the investigation and enlisted the help of the state police and, of course, the medical examiner, the medical examiner's office came and delivered the body to the ME's office, and the autopsy wasn't done until the 26th. So obviously okay. Christmas Day, there was a gap in time, and then the initial medical examiner, Dr. Sillery, conducted the initial autopsy. And what was Dr. Sillery's finding? Yeah, his finding was that Deborah, Deborah's cause and manner of death was not homicide, and it was not uh, any type of closed head injury, strangulation, or uh, any other means. He indicated that uh, essentially she died of a drug overdose, essentially, uh, indicating that um, she had uh, some morphine in her body, uh, that her body was beating into shut down because of prolonged drug use, and this ultimately led to her death. Okay. So, Dr. Sillery knew that she'd been found naked in a snowbank 20 miles from her home right. and judged it natural causes. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. So, automatically, this uh, didn't sit well with the investigators involved in the case. The first person that you put on the witness stand at a murder trial is the medical examiner so that he or she can convey to the jury and the judge that the reason I'm sitting here in this homicide case is because, in fact, my medical and pathological investigation revealed that this person died of, a hom of, of an unnatural act. If you can't put that witness on the stand, you have no case. Uh, so right, after, right off the bat, the investigators assigned at the time um, 
uh, were struggling with how we can overcome this. And it wasn't until February uh, 26th of 1981, uh, the investigators involved presented then prosecutor, uh, the then prosecutor of Oakland County with um, uh, the inconsistencies in the case and having dialogue with other med medical examiners in the area uh, based on their view of the pictures and the crime scene and, and uh, them coming up to the conclusion that no, it appeared we've believed that she died of unnatural causes, that the prosecutor finally signed off on a second autopsy. They got an order to exhume her body, and uh, the second autopsy was done at the um, University Hospital in Ann Arbor. The two uh, medical examiners at the time, Dr. Willis Mueller and uh, Dr. Robert Hendricks, came to the conclusion that uh, her, uh, the death was uh, a murder caused by strangulation, probably some type of belt or soft ligature. Did the medical examiner's ruling in December of 1980 that this was not a homicide impede the detective's investigation of her death? Without a doubt. Without a doubt. Um, you know, when the ruling comes down that it is not a homicide uh, within the time, a very close time frame of discovering the body, you now have a mountain to climb in terms of where you are in proceeding forward with the case. Uh, you know, you really have to kind of set back any other means of moving forward in the investigation and going back and dealing strictly with the body and what you have and what you can do to potentially change per the perspective of that uh, medical examiner to have him or her change her mind. So it put a stall on things big time. Did Dr. Sillery deciding that this death was due to natural causes uh, prevent him from collecting samples from her body. I know that DNA really didn't exist right. in 1980, but right. yeah. I believe that they would have done some sort of physical exam. Yeah, yeah. Was anything collected? I I, I don't know for sure um, in terms of what was collected. Uh, what the the uh, the autopsy protocols were in the early 80s, uh, I'm sure were followed. I'm sure that the boxes were checked. Um, notations were made on uh, were made about you know strange things in the body bruising and, and things like that. It's my understanding from the reading the reports and talking with uh, the previous investigators that everything was sort of explained away that um, you know oh this could have been weather related or she you know this could have been happened with her clothing rubbing on her feet and that type of thing. Just to give it another perspective, if you're working with a team of investigators. Uh, from Detroit police, the state police, ourselves, and we're looking to either match this to homicides that they may be working that have similarities. Well, in a case where you have a medical examiner who's waffling and won't even say it's a homicide, well, you've got to move forward on the cases that are known homicides, right? right? And that kind of put us on the back burner. And when that came, uh, it was full speed ahead, but we still had, uh, we were way behind. What can the public do to help you bring closure to this case? Well, we always are looking for, for tips. Uh, what's very sad here is that Deborah lived a very rough life, very rough life. 18 years old, I know she spent um, uh, many years in and out of the juvenile justice system, uh, kicked out of her home at an early age, uh, trying to stay with family, friends. Uh, she has one brother who is uh, alive today, and we still remain in contact with him. Uh, his name is David. He lives in the area. We keep in regular contact with him, and there's always that sense of that my loved one's death that didn't just go, it wasn't swept under the rug, that there was somebody out there that really had wanted to 
find who was responsible for it and bring that person to justice. And we have made that promise to him and his family that we will never close the book on this case. It's a little dormant right now because we're out of tips. We need new information. Anything. I mean, I granted it was, you know, many years ago. We realized that. The fact remains is that any small piece of information um, could be helpful to the case. Um, and that's whether you know of somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody who talked about this case or, or having some type of information. Call us, provide us as much information as you have, and we will follow up on it. With the resources outside of community tips that we're looking for, we have a number of other resources that we uh, have with this case. One is we are working with our state, federal, and local partners uh, through a program called VICAP. It's a federal program. Uh, the Violent Crime Apprehension Program, and that we have a um, um, basically an analyst sort of assigned to us, and that analyst is constantly uh, looking at a database of cases, elements of those cases that may match ours, and when we get information on that, we can follow up on those. There's a lot of investigators working on cold cases out there, and because of that, the VICAP database gets populated, and we benefit from that information. So that's that's one of the big things we're doing. Uh, also, we have uh, a, a prosecutor with the Oakland County Prosecutor's Office assigned to this case. So in the event we need a search warrant to follow up on a tip or uh, some type of subpoena-related activity, we have a direct contact with that prosecutor who can facilitate that quickly, as opposed to getting a new prosecutor every time and having to explain the background over and over and over again. So the Prosecutor's Office has been tremendously resourceful to us uh, in following, tips that, following up on the tips that we have received. And lastly, we do have a consortium of cold case investigators that uh, meet every now and then just to discuss where we're at with these cases. And um, unfortunately, you know, things go quieter and quieter as the months and years go by. You know, this is a, a case that we will never close the book on until it's solved. There's a lot of theories out there that people think, well, she was murdered somewhere else and dumped here, which would make the murder in another jurisdiction, okay? Um I firmly believe, doing this job for 20 years, seeing the picture, of the, seeing the pictures of the crime scene, knowing the desolate location, I still think that that location is where the murder occurred and where the body was dumped. You don't just drive around with a, a, a naked 18-year-old uh, girl in the car without somebody causing some sort of alarm from Detroit to, to Farmington. You know, she, um, was she was last seen trunk. in Detroit. She was last seen in Detroit, Woodward and Seward, which is near the area of Seven Mile. Um, she uh, went uh, to meet uh, her boyfriend Kim, at, um, at around 11 o'clock at night uh, at a restaurant. The restaurant was right across the Euclid Hotel, which is where she, she worked. They had a conversation. She said, well, I think it's time I need to get out and uh, you know, see if I can make some money tonight. Um, she walked across the street. Uh, her boyfriend was somehow distracted from um, you know, watching her leave. And when he turned his head again, she was gone. After her not checking in a couple hours later, he grew very concerned and suspicious and finally notified the Detroit police uh, of a missing person. And once the news picked up on this and the radio reports went out and the news reports went out, Detroit police realized, I think we know who you're missing is, called the detectives to the scene with pictures and, and the boyfriend identified, yeah, that, that's Deborah. Yeah. I understand from reading in the papers in Detroit or in Wayne County, there was, uh, again, reading from old newspaper clippings, that there was a serial killer preying on prostitutes in yeah. the Detroit area. Yeah. So when the 
my friend put up the alarm, mm -hmm. there was probably great concern because yes. there was a pattern going on. Yes, yes. Uh, we looked into that particular serial killer as well, and uh, we were able to exclude him as a uh, as a as a uh, suspect in the in this case. Um, so we're we're certain that the person that person is not uh, involved in the death of, of Deborah Rentschler. Um, but yes, to answer your question, yeah, that was a lot of uh, a lot of focus uh, on on the serial killer as well as a couple other people in the area. We thought we had a good lead, a uh, man by the name of uh, David Buner Kemper, common spelling. <laughs> uh, he um, he was a uh, Washtenaw County resident, and uh, he was arrested for kidnapping and uh, raping a woman um, in the area, and uh, we thought that he could potentially be a suspect in our case. We interviewed him in prison. He uh, passed away in prison uh, shortly thereafter, and we learned subsequently to his passing that he probably was not uh, involved in our case. Um, but, you know, people like this are certainly folks that if you talk to um, anyone who uh, does criminal profiling, meet a certain set of um, variables, you know, to do a crime like strangulation, to, you know, uh, to a, a assault somebody in the manner that, that she was assaulted and dumped. You know, uh, there are certain people out there that fit that category, whether they're in prison or roaming the streets right now. This person is, is out there, and, and we, need to, we need to find who they are, so... We firmly believe that uh, based on the way Deborah was discovered and uh, bruising on her body, uh, that the evidence towards a uh, malicious attack on her outweighs any type of accidental sexual gratification type activity. Again, this was Christmas Eve 1980, so if someone was acting strangely at the family get-together, yes. something seemed out of place, right. this may be someone that could be of interest. Absolutely. You know, um, we know for sure that Deborah's customers, her her regular customers, were older white men from the suburbs. She typically did not, uh, she was not solicited by uh, African Americans. She would not accept solicitations from African Americans unless they were very old. I don't know what her preference was there, but uh, that, that's what it was based on uh, witnesses. Uh, who have, who've, um, knew her and uh, talked to us about her. You know, we have to believe that it's somebody from the suburbs who came out and uh, and uh, solicited her for sex. And um, you know, she would either go to the Euclid Hotel or somewhere in their car. And it appears in this one, it was a car. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that uh, the car trunk. Is it possible that she was transported sure. in the trunk? It's certainly possible. But again, I still I'm holding I'm holding firm on my theory that this all happened right there you know whether the conversation she had with this particular john was hey uh where are you taking me that type of thing or whether he bound her uh or or otherwise immobilized her uh while the trip was made out there uh to farmington out here to farmington that's all open for speculation but based on just what we have at the crime scene, the discovery of her body there, the condition of her body, we really firmly believe that it all happened right here in Farmington. And for, for listeners who aren't familiar with the area, to get from Seven Mile and Woodward to Grand River and Drake, mm -hmm. especially in 1980 before the freeway was yep. built, 
It was a long drive. It, it sure was. It was a 20, 30-minute drive. It sure was. Even, at, even late at night on a weeknight. Yep. So it's very possible that a number of things could have happened. Could the uh, suspect have been armed, put a gun to her, a knife to her, and said, you're going to sit quiet while we take a little ride? All those things are, uh, are theories that we're dealing with, but they all lead to the crime happening in our city. How many cases does the city of Farmington have open, unsolved? This is the last unsolved murder that the city of Farmington is investigating. That's terrific. So if we can put a close to this one, that would be one heck of a track record. But more importantly, bring closure to this case and closure to the family. And, you know, may she rest in peace. Amen. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Anything we can do to get the word out, and I I appreciate the time you're given this. It's certainly a worthy cause. If you have information about the death of Deborah Rentschler, please contact the Farmington Police Department at 248-474-4700. Thank you for listening to the Already Gone podcast. If you like our podcast, share us with your friends and subscribe to us. If you love our podcast, a positive review would be appreciated. You can also follow us on Facebook and on Twitter. Visit our webpage at www.alreadygonepodcast.com. You can email me, host at alreadygonepodcast.com. I welcome your feedback, suggestions for episodes, and reviews. Thank you for listening, and be safe. loading up on things from Walmart? Yeah, I used my new Capital One Walmart Rewards card. It earns unlimited 5% back on everything I buy from Walmart online. Say what? 5% back. Say what? 5% back. Say what now? 5% 5 back. With what? The Capital One Walmart Rewards card. Earn unlimited rewards, including 5% back at Walmart online on top of Walmart's everyday low prices. What's in your wallet? Terms and exclusions apply. Capital One N.A.